Scripture reading for this morning is from John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So, He delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Our Father, as we march closer and closer to that sacred moment when Jesus offered up his life as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would come this morning and do surgery on our hearts. I pray that you would reveal the secret desires and intentions of our hearts. I pray that you would reveal to us our various fears and help us to rightly order our fears. I pray that you would help us to choose the fear of the Lord and to receive you as our great and eternal King both now and forevermore. Father, I trust you for the things that you already have done in this service, and I trust you for the things that you will do. We bow ourselves, all of us, before you and before your word now and pray that you would speak. Thank you, our Lord and God, for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. It was late in the morning now, and the sun was high in the clear blue sky. The trial had dragged on for hours upon hours, but it was about to come to its appointed end. After Pilate had met in private with Jesus for the second time, after he had heard the pronouncement from Jesus that the authority he had over Jesus actually came from above and not from Rome, after Pilate received the judgment that his sin was great but that the sin of Caiaphas was greater, Pilate stood or sat before Jesus in silence. John does not record another word, and I think that the Silence of Pilate is very pregnant in this moment. He knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges that had been brought against him. He knew that there was no legal basis to punish Jesus, much less take his life. He knew that Jesus Christ was not a normal man and that he really was to be feared, and he probably suspected that Jesus might even be a deity all wrapped up in flesh. Roman rulers were known to think this of this person and that This explains in part, in fact, why Pilate was afraid of Jesus. And so it was that Pilate left the room where he had met with Jesus and repeatedly tried to release him from custody. He entered in not not to one, but into a series of discussions with the Jews and tried to get them to do the right thing and to let this man go. He tried to get them to choose Jesus over Barabbas, to release the innocent one and to crucify the guilty one. But the Jews 
At least their leaders would not be persuaded. And in time, they made the argument that would turn out to end the debate. Simply, they said in verse 12, you will see there, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, this calls for a little bit of thought and reflection on our part. This term, Caesar's friend, or in Greek and Latin, it was more stated a friend of Caesar. This is actually an official term. In fact, not long after this time, it became an official title for rulers in the, in the empire. To be a friend of Caesar was to be in Caesar's favor and to uh, receive the benefits of his favor. Not to be Caesar's friend was to be outside of Caesar's favor and to welcome his ire and perhaps even his wrath upon a person. It was a, a good thing to be a friend of Caesar. It was a very bad thing to not be a friend of Caesar. So I want us to understand that when the Jews said, if you release Jesus, you are not a friend of Caesar, they were not making a casual comment. They were making a threat. And their threat was potent. Here is the logic of their threat. It was as if they were saying, first of all, Jesus has made himself to be a king. God has not made him to be a king. We have not made him to be a king. He has gathered himself a following and made himself to be a king. Second point, the Jews would say to Pilate, since he has made himself out to be a king, he stands in opposition to Caesar and he stands in opposition to the Roman interests in the land of Israel. Third point, Whoever stands with him, therefore, also stands against Caesar, also stands against Roman interests in the land of Israel. And finally, we get to the threat. The Jews were clearly saying to Pilate that if you release this man and stand against Caesar, we will report you to Caesar and do everything we can to get you to pay a high price for that decision. We will try to see to it that you are removed from your position and perhaps even removed from this earth. So, Pilate, here's the question for you. Do you want to be a friend of Caesar or do you want to be a friend of Jesus? Beloved, this very sophisticated threat was not an idle threat. In the years before this event, the Jews had repeatedly gone to Caesar to complain about Pilate. They had already done this before. The channels of communication were there. When Pilate heard them say, you are not a friend of Caesar, he perfectly understood what they were saying. And I think that in Pilate's mind, he knew that this particular threat was very serious because if he was charged with standing with a man who rose up against Caesar, he would probably pay with his life. Yes, Pilate had a kind of fear of Jesus. Yes, Pilate probably thought that to some extent and in some way, Jesus was a deity who had taken on flesh. Yes, Pilate cared about what his wife had said to him that was ringing in his mind. Surely it gripped his soul, this dream that she had had about this man and this word that she sent, do not touch this man because I have suffered much because of him in a dream tonight. All of this was in Pilate's mind. Yes, Pilate had looked in the eyes of Jesus and felt his calm confidence and sensed the great authority with which he spoke. Yes, Pilate had a kind of fear of Jesus and yes, Pilate also had a fear of Caesar and of what Caesar might do if he bent to the will of the Jews. If we press in a little bit deeper into Pilate's heart, I think that we see that underneath his twin fears was really a controlling desire. His desire 
was to have position in the Roman Empire. And along with that position, he wanted power, he wanted possessions, and he wanted prestige. And his fundamental desire to have position and power is what governed his thoughts, his feelings, his words, and his actions. His fundamental desire to have position and power gave order to his fears and helped him to make a decision. What I mean is that on the one hand, Pilate did fear Jesus, and on the other hand, Pilate did fear Caesar, and in order to make a decision about the life and death of Jesus, he had to decide which fear was the greater fear in his life. And the thing that would cause him to finally decide which fear was the greater fear is actually his fundamental desire. It was actually what he wanted out of life, and what he wanted out of life was position, power, possessions, prestige, pleasure, and the like. When Pilate had finally made his decision, he called his court back into session, if you will, and he announced his verdict to those who had been awaiting his decision. Since the Jews would not enter into the residence of a Gentile, even if that Gentile was a ruler, Pilate had moved his judgment seat outside of the inner court of his palace and into a place where he could conduct the official business of the empire. In that place, he would not just at this moment, but over time, he would pronounce judgments that were binding on all who were implicated by them, and he was about to sit in that place and make another very powerful judgment again. And if you you think about this, I, I gave some thought this week to how silly it kind of is for human beings to say, now, if I speak over here, uh, my speech means one thing, but if I go over here and sit in this special seat, then the special seat makes my speech mean another thing. And in a way, it's silly. In a way, that, that to sit on a seat means nothing at all. But I do think it's a helpful way of distinguishing different kinds of speech. And we have this in our culture too, don't we? If a judge deliberates in his chambers with people, that's one thing. When a judge sits at the bench and takes that gavel in his hand, his or her speech means another thing. There is authoritative binding power to that speech. And so it was no small thing for Pilate to sit in that seat. He was now saying, the deliberations have concluded, and I am about to announce my decision. And my decision will not be up for debate. My decision will affect the lives of everybody involved. My decision will be final, period, and end of story. When Pilate sat on that judgment seat, he once again called Jesus to walk out before the people. And there stood Jesus, still arrayed, in that thorny crown that the soldiers had placed upon his head. There Jesus stood still with fresh blood and hardened blood falling down his face. There Jesus stood before his own people with that robe of mocking around his body. There Jesus stood still enduring the pain of the blows that the soldiers had struck against his face and the blows that the whip had struck against his back. There Jesus stood, still willing to drink the cup of his Father until every last drop was gone. It was the day before the Sabbath, and it was almost noon The sun was high in that clear blue sky, and the trial had gone on for six or seven hours, but it was about to come to its appointed end. Pilate drew a breath, and he spoke three words. The first time he brought Jesus out before the people, he said, Behold the man. We looked at that last week. Now he brought Jesus out before the people, and he said, Behold your king. In a way, I think 
Pilate was mocking the Jews because Jesus looked so weak and so pathetic and in a way I think he was just trying to rub it in. Really, you think this is the guy that's gonna lead your people against the Roman Empire? And in another way, I think Pilate was still trying to persuade the Jews to do the right thing. He was giving them one more chance before he pronounced his sentence to let him go. He was saying, look how weak he is, look how pathetic he is, look how incapable he is, do the right thing. But the Jews would not be persuaded. And so they cried out, they shouted out, they may even have screamed for the third time, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Those of you who have been around glory of Christ for a long time, you'll remember that many centuries earlier, when the Lord had graciously given his law to his people through his prophet Moses, the people of Israel said to the Lord three times, all that the Lord has said, we will do. You remember this? All that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. They lifted their promise up to the third power, and yet it only took a breath. It only took a moment until they began failing to keep that promise. And for centuries upon centuries, they failed to keep that promise. And now they came to this faithful moment, this fateful moment. And oh, did they ever bring to crescendo their failure to obey the Lord, to love the Lord, to trust the Lord. They rejected the Lord God himself to his face and in his hearing. Imagine, if you will, what it would be like to be inside the skin of Jesus at this time and to hear your very people whom you had called into existence and to whom you had been so gracious for so many centuries and now with your ears you hear them say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Jesus would not have been surprised, but trust me, beloved, he was grieved. God feels And in this moment, Jesus felt the sting of those words. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him as their king. Pilate tried one more time to change their minds. He drew another breath and said in verse 15, shall I crucify your king? I still hear a hint of sarcasm in his voice, but I think he's still trying to give them another chance to do the right thing. But beyond whatever was in Pilate's mind, beloved, I see some very profound things in this question. Shall I crucify your king? In a way, God is warning his people through Pilate. Let me just sort of back up for a minute and help you understand what I mean. Several times, Jesus himself subtly and graciously warned Judas Iscariot not to do what he had planned in his heart to do. The Lord repeatedly gave Judas chances to see the nature of the choice he was about to make and to make a better choice. He was warning him, don't walk in that way. But here's the thing, all along, Jesus knew he was going to walk in that way. He's warning a man against an evil that he knows that man is going to commit. Then, when it came to Pilate, God worked and repeatedly warned Pilate, don't touch this man. Do not find this man guilty. Do not condemn this man. Do not crucify this man. Do not commit this evil. God graciously warned Pilate against the evil that God knew Pilate was going to commit. And now, here he stands, the Gentile governor of the nation that is occupying the promised land. And God is using him to speak to his own people and say, shall you crucify your king? 
Will you do this evil thing that is in your heart? Beloved, I see God warning his people away from grievous sin, even though he knows they're going to commit this sin. Why would God do this? Why would God warn people against an evil that he knows they're going to commit? I think that in part it's to show that God is not complicit in their evil. I believe with all my heart that God caused everything happening here to come about. God is in absolute and total control. The ancient prophecies of all of these things show that God saw all this before the foundation of the world and thought it good. But this does not mean that God is complicit in evil. And when he intends to use the, the evil act of a man like Judas or the evil act of a man like Pilate or the evil act of a man like Caiaphas, he's going to warn them against that act because he's not complicit in their sin. In this way, God shows himself to be holy and sovereign. Do you see this? God shows himself to be without blame and in total control of everyone and of everything. Oh, beloved, the beauty and the tragedy of this question. Shall I crucify your king? Ponder this. Ponder this and let the Lord grant you insight. The chief priests of the nation of Israel were called of God to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. That is what their lives were supposed to be about. And then the second thing they were supposed to do is to shepherd the people of God, to do the same thing, and to love the Lord. The calling on my life is no different. I'm not called in this place to make anything of myself. I am nobody. I am a vapor that will be here today and gone tomorrow. But while I have breath, the Lord has called me to love him by his grace and to persuade everybody I can to join me in loving God above everything and everyone else. This was the calling of the priests of Israel, beloved. But in this extremely serious moment, when they were given a chance to express their allegiances, what did they say? Look at verse 15. They said what had already been in their hearts all along. Shall I crucify your king? Here was their answer. We have no king but Caesar. That question, or that answer, is so sad to me that I literally cried three or four times this week when I came to this part of my study and read that statement and felt the power of it. I cried because of what it implies about their heart toward the Lord. It's possible that the Jews were simply acknowledging the fact that there was not a king in the land of Israel. There had not been a king there for a long time. If you want to be as gracious as possible, you can just say they're just stating the fact. There's a king in Israel. His name is Caesar. There is no actual king of Israel, and this guy, Jesus, is certainly not our king. But if that was their point, they could have made the point in a very different way that would have better expressed the desires of their hearts. But that's not what they said. Their words actually reveal the depths of their hearts. They were not a people who were submitted to the Lord their God. They were not. I wish I had another 15 or 20 minutes of time this morning so that I could bring you back and explain some things to you about what transpired between the days of Malachi and the days of Jesus, those four centuries we call the intertestamental period. But let me just summarize it like this. During those four centuries, the high priesthood of Israel and many other priestly offices became political offices that were bought and sold. Has it ever occurred to you, this question, while we've been going through John, why are there two high priests named here in this part of John? Why is there an Annas and a Caiaphas, both of whom are called the high priest? And by the way, in addition to them, there were other men still living who had also served as the high priest. God had commanded them to have one high priest. 
And when he was appointed, he was to serve unto death. I will tell you why there were multiple high priests. Because it had ceased to be a religious office for the glory of God, and it had become a political office for the glory of man. That's why. These people had long ago, long ago, walked away from the Lord. Their lips were near to him, but their hearts were far from him. They were essentially a secular people, and in some ways, this is the most honest thing they said in the whole trial. We have no king but Caesar. That's a tragic statement, and that is a true statement, at least for those who are in the lead here. Some time ago, I told you that during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was about an eight or nine day festival when you put it all together, the Jews would regularly and repeatedly sing what they called the Hallel. It's Psalms 113 through 118. They grouped those songs together and they would sing them aloud during the Passover. When they finished singing the very last words of Psalm 118, the leaders of Israel would lift up their voices and pray this prayer in the hearing of the people. Every single day of the feast, they would pray these words. Here's what they would say. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Besides you, we have no kin. We have no redeemer. We have no savior. Besides you, we have no liberator, no deliverer, no provider. Besides you, there is none who takes pity in every time of distress and trouble. And the last words of their prayer, we have no king but you. The very priests who were accusing Jesus now took those words on their lips in the hearing of the people every day of the Passover and of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They drew near to the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And therefore, I say to you again that the most honest thing they said during the trial was this, we have no king but Caesar. This wasn't true of every Jew, was not true of every priest, that's for sure. I'm thinking of others like Zechariah the priest and others that you probably could think of as well that had a true love for the Lord at this time. But for those who were in control, they were secular hypocrites, beloved. Jesus had come to his own people and his own people did not receive him as their king. At this point, Pilate saw that there was simply no way to persuade the Jews to release Jesus and crucify Barabbas. And so I wanna put it to you this way, Pilate sinned a very great sin And you'll see at the beginning of verse 16, he delivered Jesus over to be crucified. John doesn't give us the details, but this means that Pilate sat on that judgment seat in the city of Jerusalem, somewhere near to the temple, and Pilate spoke the words in Latin, ibis em crucem. This was the way that people were pronounced, uh, uh, given the, the death penalty by crucifixion. On the cross you shall go. That's what he would have said. Ibis in crucem. And with that, he would have released Jesus to the uh, purview of the soldiers. They would have led him off to give him now a severe flogging. You may remember from last week, there were three levels of flogging. He would have now received a level three flogging and then been led out and hung up upon a cross, which we'll talk about in in the coming weeks. But whatever the particulars of that, I think we have to, Just pause for a moment and feel this. The trial of Jesus has now come to an end. And the decision was pronounced that he saw coming from the very beginning. This is why he bowed in the garden and cried and sweat drops of blood. He knew that he was going to have to drink the cup of his father's wrath. He knew that the wrath of Pilate and the wrath of the Jews was only a small part of that. He knew what was coming and now the sentence had been pronounced. 
And now there was no turning back. Now the Jews had finally rejected their king. Now Pilate had finally ordered his fears and made his heart known to the world. The question before Pilate in all of this was this. Do you want to be a friend of Caesar? Or do you want to be a friend of Jesus? This was a complicated question for him because he did have a measure of fear for both of them. He had a fear of Jesus and he had a fear of Caesar, so he had to ponder his options and decide what he was going to do. He had to decide what the greater fear was in his life. And I don't know a single thing about the internal deliberations of his heart, but I do think I know what finally tipped the scales and allowed him to make a decision. Namely, as I said earlier, I think he had a controlling desire in his life that caused him to choose one fear over another. Pilate wanted position, power, possessions, prestige, pleasures, and the like. That's the fundamental desire of his life. And his desires ordered his fear. He chose Caesar over Jesus, and he sinned and pronounced that faithful, faithful and fatal sentence. The discernment of desire led to the ordering of fear, which in turn led to the, the most, uh, perhaps the most serious judgment that was ever spoken by a man against another man in the history of the world. And while Pilate was a particular man in a very unique situation, he was not an utterly unique man who was dealing with things that were particular to him. In other words, I want to say to us now that we all have fleshly desires that control our decisions and order our fears. We are all very much like Pilate, and I pray with all my heart, beloved, that we will ponder Pilate's choice. Don't just read the words and say, yep, he pronounced the judgment, now this is gonna happen to Jesus. Take the time to put yourself inside of Pilate's skin and feel the reasons for which he did what he did. We are not that different from Pilate, beloved. I pray that by pondering Pilate's choice, we would search our own hearts and discern our own hearts. Pilate's life is a cautionary tale for us because here's the thing about choosing the wrong fear in your life. When Pilate chose the fear of Caesar over the fear of Jesus, he was not released from answering to Jesus at all. He had now still much to fear from Jesus. For the moment, he probably felt like the tension had been released in his life. This was such a heavy decision with such powerful, massive consequences. And finally, one way or the other, he pronounced his verdict and it was over. Tension released. And yet, actually, for Pilate, the tension built. And Kim and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, we have no evidence for this, but it's hard to imagine that this didn't haunt Pilate for the rest of his life. It's hard to imagine that he didn't have dreams and thoughts and fears about this for the rest of his life. How could he just walk away and forget all this? How could he do that? I imagine that the Lord continued to give both him and his wife more dreams. And I pray with all my heart that at some point, Pilate actually bowed the knee to Jesus. I don't know if he did or not. I do know that option would have been available to him. But here's what I know. If Pilate did not bow the knee to Jesus, all he did was delay the day when he would have to answer to Jesus. Pilate chose the fear of Caesar over the fear of Jesus, but one day he's gonna answer to Jesus for his fear of Caesar. Let me say that again. Pilate chose his fear of Caesar over his fear of Jesus, but one day he's gonna answer to Jesus for his fear of Caesar. Pilate chose his love of self over the love of God, but one day he's gonna answer to God for his selfish love. His decision actually did not cause him to escape the problem. It simply did not. 
I pray with all my heart that we will ponder Pilate's choice and search our own hearts because we're just like him. We have fears in life, don't we? We have desires in our lives. And I warn you, my beloved friends, I warn you, your fundamental desires will order your fears and cause you to choose certain things in life. This will happen. Jonathan Edwards talks about this at length in his book, Freedom of the Will. God has given us a will to choose, but we will only choose what we want to choose. And so our affections, at the end of the day, really do drive the bus of our lives. And if our affection is for God, we will choose the fear of God, and we will reap the reward of that choice. But if our affection is essentially for self, we're going to choose against God, even if we take the name of God upon our lips, even if, like Pilate, we confess to somebody that we have a kind of fear of Jesus. Admiration for Jesus is not the same as submission to Jesus. It's just not. And I just want to lovingly warn you that just like Pilate, you and I have desires and we have fears that will be ordered by our desires. Those who choose the fear of other things over God will still have much to fear from God. You will not escape the problem, the fundamental tension. But the great news is that for those who choose the fear of the Lord, you have nothing else in your life to fear. Absolutely nothing else in your life to fear. Kim and I are going through some really difficult things right now with our extended family on both sides of our family. Just one of those seasons where one thing has piled upon another. I have a very close relative of mine who is literally on her deathbed. She's 45 years old. She's suffering tremendously. I've been trying to talk to her as much as I can. And I can just see the depth of the reality of life, beloved, the severity of the decisions that we make, either to fear God or not to fear God. As I have counseled our family and pondered our own lives in light of what's happening to our family, I have felt such powerful joy that because by the grace of God in Jesus, I have chosen to fear Jesus, I have nothing else to fear. I don't need to fear financial disaster. I don't need to fear physical disease. I don't need to fear pain and suffering. This doesn't mean any of these things will be fun, but there's no need for any fear because the Lord God is with me. The Lord God will be faithful to me. If we choose the fear of God over the fear of other things, then we have nothing else to fear but God. Please, beloved, ponder Pilate's choice and discern your own hearts. As for Caiaphas and the other leaders of the Jews, they brought the rebellion of their people against the Lord their God to a crescendo when they uttered those honest but tragic words, we have no king but Caesar. Many centuries earlier, when the prophet Samuel was called by God to shepherd the people of God in the will and ways of God, the Jews became discontent and demanded that God give them an earthly king so that they could be like the nations around them. You remember that? There was a a fundamental fleshly desire. We want to be like them. There was a, a lack of contentment in the heart with the will of God for his people. And so they said, no, we don't want what God wants. We want what the nations have. We want what we want. And they demanded a king. God was so gracious to them. If you go back and read 1 and 2 Samuel, you will see that God tried to tell them what would happen if they got what they wanted and it would not be good. He tried to lovingly warn them. More so, God revealed his heart and said, my people, I want to be your king. And I am a sufficient king for you. God wanted his people to understand that his vision for his leadership in their lives was far superior to anything else that existed on the face of the earth. 
But at the end of the day, their hearts were hard and their necks were stiff and they simply would not listen to the Lord their God. They would not listen to his prophet Samuel. In the end, I want to put it to you this way. The Lord handed them over to their own desires and gave them what they wanted. He gave them an earthly king. Beloved, when God gives us what we want, we should not always assume that he's blessing us. Sometimes God gives us what we want because he's disciplining us. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to what the Lord might be saying when he allows you to get what you want. It didn't take long for the Lord's words to be fulfilled in the lives of the people of God and for them to begin reaping the negative consequences of having an earthly king. They suffered many difficult things because they would not listen to the Lord. But in his grace, he raised up yet another king, the young man David, and as he rose to power and came to prominence, The Lord made a promise to David that one day another king would come from his line that would raise up and rule over his people forever and ever and ever. It took more than nine centuries for God to fulfill that promise, but when the time was right, he sent Jesus Christ into the world. In the line of King David, Jesus rose up to in fact be the king of Israel. And he rose up to in fact be the king of all the nations, to in fact be the king of heaven and of earth. In his time and way, if you'll think about this, the Lord fashioned a way to get what he wanted and to give the people what they wanted. Really, in one sense, what the people wanted was they wanted a king that they could see with their eyes and touch with their hands. There is a sense in which they wanted to be like the nations around them. There's another sense in which it's just hard for us to live by faith and relate to a God that we cannot see and touch and feel. God gave them a fleshly, a king in the flesh, let me put it that way, but God gave him himself as king. Jesus came to be the God-man and the great eternal king over his people. But when he came, the people looked at him and said, no thank you. In fact, not only do we want him to be our, not want him to be our Messiah, but we want him to be crucified. These people knew much about the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. And so they rejected not just his purposes, but they rejected him. I want to encourage you again to think about what it would be like to be Jesus and to hear those words three times repeated, away with him, away with him, crucify him. This was the ultimate rejection of the leadership of the Lord in the life of Israel. The sadness of this moment when the leader said we have no king but Caesar is beyond my ability to grasp. I literally took hours this week just to ponder this moment And the more and more the Lord gave me insight, the more I realized that this is a more pregnant, profound moment than I can even grasp, much less express. But I do pray that I've said enough to help you understand what transpired at that time, namely that the Jewish people brought to crescendo their rebellion against the Lord their God when they rejected their king to his face. And I pray that we will take the time to ponder their rejection Because as it was with Pilate, so it is with the Jews, we're not really that different from them, are we? Don't we too have our ways of casting the authority of God off of our lives? Don't we have ways of saying to him, I know you want to be my king, but I'm going to be my king? I've confessed to the Lord many times, Lord, I'm really not interested in being the God of the universe. It just sounds like too much work to me, just too much to manage, too much to think about. But I wouldn't mind being the Lord of my life, though. wouldn't mind having total control over my little world. I set myself up as king, or I set other people and things up as my king, and I reject the Lord. We do this, beloved. We too draw near to the Lord with our lips when our hearts are far from him. Don't 
criticize the Jews too much. Search your own hearts along with me. Let me give you some examples. I just want to go through the Ten Commandments here with you. The Lord says that we should have no other gods before him, but we say with our actions that we will follow gods of our choosing, no matter what we say with our lips. The Lord says that we should not fashion or bow down to any idols, but we say with our actions that we will create whatever we want to please our eyes and satisfy our souls. After all, we are consumers. The Lord says that we should keep the Sabbath and keep it holy, and now that Jesus has come to fulfill the Sabbath and actually be the Sabbath for us, all that means is to make an absolute priority of Jesus in our lives. And and yet we say to the Lord with our actions, hey, listen, we're going to live life on our terms, and we will find rest in any way that we choose to find rest. The Lord says that we should honor our father and mother, but when that gets hard, we say with our actions, no thank you, and we find a way of creating all kinds of rules and exception to the rules that release us from his calling, and by the way, I would say the privilege of that calling upon our lives. The Lord says that we shouldn't murder or even hate others, but we say to the Lord with our actions at times that we'll be angry if we'd like to, thank you very much, and we will use our anger to bring about our will if that's what it takes. The Lord says that we should not commit adultery or even lust after the opposite sex, but apparently many Christians don't have any problem turning on pornography and indulging their lives, indulging their flesh, indulging their desires. We say to the Lord, you're kind of wise, but not as wise as me, and what you're commanding me not to do is really not that big of a deal, so I'm gonna do it, thank you very much. The Lord says that we should not steal from others, but we sometimes say with our actions that we can take what we need and find ways to justify our actions. The Lord tells us not to lie at all, but sometimes we just find it more convenient to say what we have to say to deal with the situation or get out of a problem. The Lord tells us that we should not covet what other people have, but we should be content with his provision, and yet we'll look at people all the time, won't we, and say, man, I I would be so much happier if I had that guy's job, or if I was able to purchase that property, or if I had that motorcycle, motorcycle, or that motorcycle, or that bicycle, or whatever it is, whatever the thing is. We say to the Lord, you tell me to be content in you, but forget about it. I'd rather lust after what they have. I could go on, beloved, and you could too, but I trust that we all get the point. It's easy to see the sin of the Jews and to criticize them for casting off the authority of God and setting up their own king, but I think we're probably more like them than we'd like to admit, and I think we have our own ways of doing this. So I wanna encourage you to ponder their rejection of Jesus and search your own heart. In what ways are you casting off his authority? In what ways are you looking at him as your king and saying, no thank you, no thank you, Lord. I've got this under control. I trust that as you search your hearts, under the gracious hand of God, that he will reveal your hearts and pour his grace upon you. By the way, as the old Detective Columbo would say, just one more thing. If you're old enough, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, ma'am, just one more thing. Just one more thing. And it was the thing that sort of brought about the end of the thing, right? While Pilate's actions were evil, and the Jews' actions were even more evil, and our actions are evil as well, God used all of these things to cause his beloved son to drink every single drop of his cup of wrath against sin so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God used the actual evil of people against Jesus, the magnification of evil against the very son of God to bring about the salvation of all who will believe. It is clear from the scripture that God is not complicit in their sin or ours. And it is clear that God is in total and absolute control and used their evil to pour out his grace upon his people, upon his precious bride. 
As I have pointed out to us many times over the last several weeks, we learn in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, these are the actual words, quote, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The events of Acts chapter 6 took place only months after the crucifixion of Jesus. Months. Not years, not decades. Months. So when it says that a great many of the priests came to faith in Christ, that means that at least some of those who were yelling crucify him eventually bowed down before him. Some of those who rejected him as their king bowed before him as their king and they gained eternal life by the grace of God in Christ. Oh, beloved, behold the profound, transforming, life-giving grace of God in Jesus. He uses even evil acts to save the very evil people who did those acts. Such is his grace toward us. And such is his grace toward anyone who will bow before him today. I don't know what sins you have sinned, I remember talking to a relative of mine a while back and he was telling me that he had sinned too greatly for God to forgive him, which, to be honest with you, I think is a smokescreen and a way of saying I'm not interested in what God has for me because that statement is absolutely not true. There is no sin so great that God's grace is not greater still. And if you will bow your life before him today, he will lavish his grace upon you. So beloved, join me in pondering Pilate's choice, in pondering the Jews' rejection, in pondering our own hearts, and join me in opening your mouths wide to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray now for God's help with these things. Oh Lord, I thank you for what you endured on our behalf, and I thank you for preserving this powerful story for us. I thank you for giving us insight into your own heart and into the heart of Pilate and into the heart of Jews, the Jews, and I pray that you would continue to give us insight into our own hearts, into our own lives, into our own motives, our own desires, our own fears, our own decisions. I pray, Father, that as we bow our lives before you and ponder our hearts in light of your word, that you would lavish your grace upon us and save us to the very end. I thank you, Father, for your patience with us. I thank you for your kindness to us by sending these words to us on this particular day. And I thank you for what you will do in Jesus' great and gracious name.